Hello, fellow dog-powered sports enthusiasts. This is Chelsea Murray, and you are listening to Positively Dog-Powered, a podcast that dives deep into the real world of positive reinforcement training and dog-powered sports. For today's episode, we are going over part two of our conversation with our friend and colleague, Allie, about dog-powered sports for reactive dogs. Thank you, Allie, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Chelsea. I got started with my own dog training business, The Animal Scientist in Atlanta, and I was working with a lot of reactive dogs. And I found that I really wanted to bring fitness into the equation. And um, I worked there for several years, and then now I work for Victoria Civil Academy, where I serve as a curriculum manager. But I still came across with my dog Klaus and then my boyfriend's dog Lizzie as well. Excellent. Yeah. And so, you know, owning a reactive dog, certainly working with clients with reactive dogs and even seeing them on the trail, you know, there's a lot of uh, stressors that both those dogs and their owners will encounter. Um, So today I want to start by diving a little bit deeper into our general training programs that we do for reactive dogs. And these are things that even if you're engaged in dog powered sports, we want our clients doing these uh, routines and all of these training programs while they're just walking through the neighborhood as well. You know, teaching our dogs basically how to handle these stressors or these triggers and how to make better choices. So when we think about our reactive dogs, we think about them maybe staring, maybe pulling, barking, lunging. We might see their hackles or their hair come up. And these are all behaviors that are obviously rooted in frustration or fear or stress, but we need to give our dogs uh, more guidance and teach them what we do want them to do, which is to ignore, to disengage, to do something else. And as you know, that's something that takes a lot of time. Um, So when we're out working with our dogs, uh, we can work through a program called Let Lamb, um, or Look at That, Look at Me. We can also work on behavior adjustment training from Grisha Stewart. Uh, Leslie McDevitt has a great program, Controlled Unleashed. We also have Emma Parsons, Click to Calm, and then Alice Tong with Engage, Disengage. And all of these are excellent programs on behavior modification, working through training programs to help our dogs learn how to do something else. So Ali, is there one program in particular that you enjoy or that you do with your dogs? Yeah, I really enjoy Grisha Stewart's bat. We've worked with her before with VSA. And I know many C-bats, which are certified um, bat trainers mm-hmm. that, that specialize in her things. And I've actually done all of her videos online as well with my dog, Klaus, who is a recovering uh, overreactive dog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ho- hopefully you can't really tell when we're out on the trail, but we did do a lot of work. And I like bat because it allows the dog to have the choice of what to do. You set them up in such a way that you're further away from the stimulus. So you're under their threshold, they're feeling good, they're not super stressed, and they notice the trigger. And they can really make the decision at that point to, do I want to leave and get reinforced or do they need some help leaving? Mm-hmm. I like, I like bat. That's a very simple summary of bat, yeah. but I like it because it's, it's a very loose way of dealing with it. Whereas some other dogs like Lizzie, um, who's a Siberian Husky, what needs a little more structure sometimes. So we mm-hmm. like to do engage, disengage with her yep. that if I just left her to her own devices outside, everything is so stimulating for her, every blade of grass, every squirrel, every bird that's flying over. So doing engage, disengage where I do have treats with me and I ask her to look at me or look at, or look at that, which also relates to Latin lamb mm-hmm. can give her a little bit more structure. 
Yeah. Yeah. Those are the programs that, that I find work well for clients that maybe don't have a lot of behavior training themselves um, or don't have a lot of experience working with reactive behavior. I do like BAT a lot. I really like when we can give our dogs choices. I think in general, our dogs don't have enough choice and, and science has shown us that choice can really improve a dog's emotional outlook on things and it decreases stress. And I think that's fantastic to be able to give them the choice to go, that's scary, but but it's okay. I can look away. I can move away from that. And then being able to reinforce that behavior is, of course, very important. Um, but yeah, it, you know, in the city, sometimes we can't get quite enough space to do, you know, behavior adjustment training for dogs that are really um, have a low window of tolerance with a trigger, right? The dogs that are very easily set over the edge into this big reaction. Finding that space can sometimes be challenging depending on where we live. So helping them make that choice to disengage and reinforcing that choice um, can be a very powerful tool for our dogs. But obviously we need to look at this, these programs kind of in a two-part process because we need to be doing this work when we're doing our leash walking um, and then we have to make different decisions when we're on the trail, depending on where we are in that training plan. Yeah, I, I think it's so important to specify that we really should start in the home. Mm -hmm. Because if you can't do these things in the house or in your driveway or in your neighborhood, it's not likely that they're going to be successful on the trail where there's even more exciting things and you're traveling faster and there's more unpredictable stimuli and you don't know what's coming for you. Whereas in your neighborhood, you kind of know the dogs, you kind of know the stimuli. So I think it's really important to practice those things on walks at a slower pace. And when you can control the environment more than expecting your dog to be able to just do these things when you're out on the trail. Yeah. And I think that brings us to an interesting point. So when we're talking about our loose leash walks and working on our behavior modification training plan, we're talking about teaching dogs how to disengage or how to look away from these things that might cause them stress or overexcitement. And obviously that's something that takes a while for our dogs to learn how to do and to be able to control themselves enough to do it without help right? Which is where they are on the trail. If I've got a dog running can across or out in front of a bike, I'm not close enough to them to really be able to get that attention quickly. Um, and so they need to be able to make that choice on their own, which needs to be a dog that's pretty advanced in their training program to be able to be far away from us, have that high arousal and high energy of our dog powered sports and have enough control to still then be able to disengage from that trigger. And I think that that brings us to an important topic of our on-by cue, because obviously with mushing, um, with our dog-powered sports, we teach on-by, which means to continue past the distraction, right? So that we don't get drug off the trail by a critter, <laughs> so that we can pass other teams on the trail. But that's not always the best decision uh, when we are working with our reactive dogs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Chelsea, I was laughing because last... Last night, I went out for a run with Klaus, and I think I was sprinkled with pixie dust or something because all the forest <laughs> creatures were coming towards us. And we had a squirrel run underneath Klaus's chin between his two front legs. Oh, my gosh. And Klaus is like, yeah, whatever, because we've worked so much on that foundation work since he, he was a puppy mm -hmm. of ignoring squirrels, that squirrels aren't fun. Chasing them means nothing. Looking at mom is so much more engaging. Mm -hmm. And we also came up on a deer that was standing about six feet off the trail. 
when we approached, she was now three feet off the trail. She was looking and sniffing Klaus and looked very intrigued in what we were doing. <laughs> but I was thinking if I had Lizzie out there, mm -hmm. that there is no way that on by would work in that situation. So with Lizzie, the only time I'll really use on by with a deer is if we are really far away. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've been practicing on. As I know, Klaus will respond to the on by. We practice that at home. We practice that in the neighborhood. And now we practice that on trails. And I know I'm confident, like 100%, maybe not 100, but 95% confident that he will on by for a deer six feet off the trail. But for yeah. Lizzie, it's going to be 60 yards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Definitely further away. Yeah. And so it's important that we are we know how to identify, right, what that threshold or tolerance is for our dogs and when our dog will be successful and when they won't be. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. They go, well, we'll just give it a try, right? We're running up to <laughs> up to a deer and we see it and we go, oh, I'll just throw in my word. Maybe it'll work, right? And then we keep repeating it going, oh, please work. We're moving really fast, right? But then we're setting our dogs up to fail in that situation because we're not confident they'll be able to do it. So it's really important that when we're working on on by, particularly with reactive dogs, that we're really doing our jobs and slowly building that distraction level up to the point so that each repetition and each little training session, it's only getting a little bit harder. And there are lots of tools that we can pull out. I mean, I have currently in my Amazon uh, shopping basket, I have a fake uh, deer that people use hunters for target practice. Uh, and I have a turkey and we're totally going to set those up on the trail and practice our on buys. We already have a cat. Of course, we have some dogs, you know, that we use with our reactive dogs in our training programs. Um, but there are so many different ways that you guys can get creative practicing those on buys, slowly increasing that distraction level and then being very realistic with those expectations and very realistic about where you are in that training plan. If your dog is still really reactive in the neighborhood and you can't loose leash walk past, you know, a neighborhood cat or another dog, I'm definitely not using my on by on the trail and trying to pass that because my I'm setting my dog up to fail. And I think what that means too, Chelsea, is not so really not using it on the trail. I want to emphasize mm -hmm. that when you're out there, like so for example, I can't tell all the deer in the park, please, could you stay at least 60 yards away from Lizzie today? <laughs> it would be so great if we could. It would be so great if I could just give them a little memo, but I can't. So instead, if a deer does come up on Lizzie and I, we now pull off the trail and I just wait. If mm -hmm. I'm carrying treats with me, that'd be fantastic. Or if I want to do stick salesman in an emergency, if the deer's coming towards right. us again, if I have my pixie dust. But if, if not, I just pull Lizzie off to the side and we wait until the deer go away. So at least she's not practicing that overreactive behavior yeah. and, and getting more reinforcement. Because that's the hard part about wildlife. And it's really about reactivity in general is that reactivity is very reinforcing mm -hmm. because most of the time it works. Mm -hmm. If you're lunging and barking and going crazy at something, that thing, whatever it is, is going to leave. And that's probably what you want. Or it's going to come say hi. So I guess that's another thing is that if your dog is lunging and barking because they want to go say hi, and then the other dog comes and does approach, we may be reinforcing that behavior as well. So it's important to think about cutting off that practice of that behavior yep. as well while yeah. we're working through the program. Yeah, cutting off that practice and cutting off that reinforcement because mm -hmm. anything we reinforce is going to get stronger. And we do not want the reactive 
uh, behaviors getting stronger. We want the disengage. We want the attention to us. We want the hand targets in the vicinity of triggers. We want all of those behaviors getting stronger. So I think that's that's really important. Yeah, which can be a little frustrating because right now Lizzie and I are actually running separately. So mm-hmm. my, because I can't just stop in the middle of one of my training runs if a deer comes by. I want, I'm doing a tempo run. I need to keep going. So I'll run by myself and then I'll take Lizzie out and just do a training run with her for like a mile just to work on reinforcing running well in harness and pulling off the trail if we need to. Yeah. And, and, splitting your training plan from your dogs, especially for our reactive dogs, is very important. You know, like you said, finding a really quiet, no distraction, no trigger environment to run the dog in harness so they keep that drive, keep the excitement, but we keep it short, right? And then you're doing your training runs to keep yourself fit for canicross or bike drawing. And then separate from that, we're doing our loose leash neighborhood walks, working on that reactive behavior and splitting all those things apart can seem overwhelming, but we can put it all on the calendar. We can make sure we're appropriately setting our time so that we have time to accomplish all of these little pieces. Because if we try to group it all together too soon, we're likely to run into some, some challenges. And it's a great thing to do in the off season. That's what Lizzie and I are looking forward to this off season is really ramping up our, our time together, just mm-hmm. getting to know one each one another. And for me, putting some behaviors out there and teaching her what I do want her to do so that we can compete come next season. Yeah, absolutely. Off season, off season is fantastic for that. When the weather is a bit too warm to go out and harness and run, build that relationship, work on those triggers, you know, build fitness in other areas, but definitely use that time you know, to your advantage to work on that. So let's talk about reactivity. We've talked about it in terms of being on the trail and we've talked about it on walks, but there's lots of different ways that our dogs can be reactive. We can see reactive behavior inside the home when we have multi-dog households, um, we where we have short tempers or short fuses and dogs get a little, you know, barky at one another. We can absolutely see it with noises, right? Every time the the mailman comes and drops off your Amazon purchase, right? Rings the doorbell, knocks on the door, and we can have barking behavior at that. We can also see it through fences with neighbor dogs or people that are walking down the street, if our dogs can see it. And even through windows, right? Where our dogs are sitting home, watching the world go by and barking at squirrels or cats or other people. And it's really important to remember that even though that's not reactive behavior on the trail, and we might look at it different, all reactive behavior is related. And so it's really important to look at that training plan as a whole and make sure that we've got our management and training set up in those environments as well. Mm -hmm. And when you're thinking about it, if your dog is one of those dogs that's sitting there watching the world go by and barking at other dogs as they walk past your front door uh, or your front window, imagine what it's like then to be out in the world especially if this is from a place of fear and now those dogs could actually get to you or get near to you. Um, That's what we want to think about for our dogs is really setting them up and helping them be comfortable at home. Imagine being uncomfortable all day at home and then now you're out on the trail 
that'd be so sad. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't have to all be sad, but just thinking about it, you probably want a break yourself from all yeah. that barking. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Trying to yeah. get work done at home during the pandemic is not mm -hmm. always easy if you've got a dog that's barking at all these these triggers. Um, and I, I think one thing that can be hard for people is the management component inside, but that's actually one of the easiest things that we can do. Um, you know, if you've got a dog that is reactive to noises, we can disengage our doorbell. We can put a sign on the door that says dog in training, please do not knock. We could play some music downstairs in the living room so that while they're home during the day, there's something else for them to listen to and, and relax to. Um, closing windows is another big one and putting up, you know, barriers along our fence to to provide some of that visual blocks uh, that we were talking about in, in the last episode, helping to reduce some of that visual stimuli to, you know, help make it easier for the dog. And then set yourself up for success by having treat stations. You know, make it easy for you to reward good behavior throughout the day. So Lucy, um, our oldest dog, can be a little reactive when not all, but specific dogs walk past um, the house. And so we have a treat jar that is easy for me to get to so that when I'm sitting on the couch, you know, doing work or watching TV and I see a dog pass, it's really easy for me to reach into that treat jar and pay her for watching quietly. Right. And when I'm not there to do the training, the blinds are closed so that she's not able to rehearse that behavior. You can also be a crazy person, especially if you live in a more rural area and make your own noises. Mm -hmm. So I remember when Klauser was young, I would rock around and bump the wall and then go, oh, yay, and give Klaus a treat. So just yeah. making random noises around your own house. Uh -huh. if, if you don't have noises very often, and many of my clients um, would not have people over very often, or especially in a, I'd had lots of clients in a high rise. So no one would come over except guests. Mm -hmm. So they never had anyone ring the doorbell or anything unless it was a guest and the dog would get so excited. So we actually right. had more fake guests come over. So they would just have someone knock on the door when, uh, when they walked by down the hall and they would give a treat. So having more opportunities for that or having less. So you want to see what is really working best for your dog and maybe for your, uh, zoom schedule <laughs> yeah absolutely we um you know our our youngest lennon has recently started showing some signs of stress with loud noises like fireworks and gunshots um and obviously when you're riding in the woods on wildlife management areas or in areas that allow hunting during certain times of year you'll hear some gunshots off in the background and i don't want him to be worried about those noises um, i don't want him to make a negative association with mushing because he hears noises when we're out so i've gone to youtube and i get you know, type in gunshot noises or fireworks, and I can use those noises playing from my phone, starting at really low volumes and work each day for five to 10 treats, you know, and that's a really easy way to create, recreate that noise in a safe environment at a volume I can control while I'm slowly working on um, letting him know that those noises are okay by pairing them with food. So yeah. we can definitely get creative with, with how we handle the reactivity. Um, if you're ready for shameless plug time, uh, Positively and Victoria do have a canine noise phobia CD series that it actually, she has things like city noise and thunderstorms and she's paired up with um, uh, psychoacoustician, not going to say that quite right, Joshua Leeds from Through a yes. Dog's Ear and yep. the protocols on the CDs are actually, they break up 
the music. So it's not just music all the time, but it's certain uh, durations of music so that the dogs aren't always just constantly hearing music and eventually will tune it out. So it's a great Mm -hmm. thing to look up if you're looking for pre-planned things and maybe necessarily don't uh, have time to go to YouTube or search out those things. Yeah, absolutely. That's wonderful. That sounds like a really great resource. So when we are uh, working with our dogs, you know, outside of the house, we've worked on our behavior modification training plan. We have a good grasp on how we're going to handle each trigger. I think the next piece is where do we go, right? Because not all trails are created equal. Some are certainly busier. Some have um, more obstacles in the way that may make passing or moving off the trail more challenging. Are there certain features that you look for when you are looking at trails to start your reactive dogs on? Yeah. um, Sometimes I like the wider trails. So you got the double track uh, versus single track. So sometimes I like double track because then you can get further off the trail in case someone's coming by. But then sometimes with those double track trails, um, especially if you're closer to a city or populated area, that means more people are going to be there, Mm -hmm. more walkers, more kids on bikes, more dogs. Uh, But sometimes if you can find like fire roads, even though we do want to be cognizant of surfaces and heavy gravel or anything like that, but old fire roads or service roads can be helpful if they do have a nice surface because they seem to be a little more remote. Not too many people are going there. Um, I like single track. I personally love single track, but also you want to be careful if your dog is reactive to bikes because it may be a mountain bike trail or a horse trail. So Klaus, uh, bless his heart, because I was on the equestrian team in college, but he is a little horse reactive. We didn't do much exposure as a puppy. So I have to be careful of trails that share space with horses as Uh well. So you want to think about, is my dog's problem bikes? Do I want to go to a bike place. Chelsea, I was thinking somebody mentioned the other day going to Blankets Creek here in Georgia, mm-hmm. which Blankets Creek is like a hardcore mountain bike place that I can't really imagine taking dogs like on a Saturday per se when yeah. it's all Super bikes. Busy. You know, Tuesday at 2 p.m., that would be a different story, but maybe it's not so much on a Saturday morning. So thinking about these different trails, I like to go to places beforehand to check yep. it out before my dog comes with me so that I see what's going on around. Do I think my dog could handle the situation? Where are some places that we could go bail if we Mm -hmm. needed to pull off to the side and, and just kind of see it from the dog's point of view of, is this a good place for my, for my pup? Yeah, I think that's great. I think that one of the biggest, the biggest things to do is to check the trail out without your dog, the day and the time of day you plan on going, because there are definitely trails, you know, as we have, um, checked trails out around our our local area. There are certainly trails that are busier than others. There are certainly trails that are crazy busy on the weekends and very open during the week. So if you had weekday flexibility, right, that would be okay. Um, And there are certain trails that, like you said, allow multi-use. So being cognizant of what triggers your dog has. And if we go to a trail that allows horses or has a bunch of bikes or allows ATVs or snowmobiles, right? Those are all things we need to be mindful of. Um, and I'm I'm with you. I, I generally prefer the single track trails myself as well. Um, a lot of a lot of the easier trails that that I have had experience working with uh, tend to be more open 
which I think is nice for beginners, more open, more flat, less obstacles. But the other thing to consider with that as well for our reactive dogs is that there might not be any visual barriers. So if we have dogs that are more um, visually uh, vigilant, we need to make sure that we are able to offer them some form of uh, visual barrier or visual break. And if there isn't anything there, I would work really hard on like a confront with that dog so that I could get them to move off the trail and put their back towards the trigger and keep that attention to me while I paid them for that. So again, knowing what you have access to locally and then knowing what triggers your dog has and what skill set you might need to be able to handle those particular trails. Mm -hmm. I love the come front so we get our dog looking at us rather than having to look at the at the trigger. I also was thinking of time of day. There's a, a good resource, a book called Midnight Dog Walkers Club. And I was thinking because it's for reactive dog owners. Uh -huh. I'm thinking about how if you ever see a person walking their dog in the middle of the night, it yeah. probably is because their dog's reactive and they've recognized that it's easier to walk them when other dogs aren't around. So thinking about the different time of day of when you could go out when there might be fewer dogs around. But mm -hmm. then Chelsea, we have another issue. If we go out when not many other dogs around, that's kind of a desirable time to be out on the trail. And that's when I've seen that I encounter some of the most off-leash dogs. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely something that we want to avoid uh, with our dogs that are reactive towards other dogs. Mm -hmm. So what... I tend to think about what we can do if a, an off-leash dog is approaching us. I know sometimes mm -hmm. I carry treats with me and we'll throw treats. The first thing I usually yell is call your dog Yep. with like a, on a wing and a prayer that, <laughs> that maybe, maybe. And really loudly so out. that you yes. can hear me. <laughs> yes. That maybe they'll actually call their dog and their dog will actually turn around and go back to them. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it happens. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes it's crazy. It does, and we thank them profusely. Mm -hmm. as we pass. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. But that's not always the case. I, I often find that more dogs are off leash legally uh, that should not be off leash for behavior reasons, right? Um, we need to make sure that we're respecting everybody's uh, space and time out on the trail and allowing our dogs off leash. Even if your dog is friendly, you know, obviously our dog reactive clients are aware of those dangers. Nobody likes being rushed. Even if your dog is friendly. Um, my, my boy Lennon, um, he is very social and he loves all of his friends and we have been charged off leash by so many dogs and it has worked very well every single time, but that is not an experience I want for him. And that's not always going to be the case. He mm -hmm. won't always be okay with something. Um, so yes, uh, first off, I yell loudly for them to call their dog. Um, I often try to keep treats on me so that I could do a scatter to kind of keep that dog busy with something else. Um, if that doesn't work, I'm generally um, talking to the dog, and it definitely depends on the dog's body language, um, but telling the dog to stay, telling the dog to sit, using cues that most people would likely train their dog, so the dog would likely understand me. Um, and for my reactive dogs, you know, putting the dog behind me. Um, if we have a very well-trained dog, we could certainly work on a behind cue, so that if we're running in places where there are often off-leash dogs, being able to say, behind, and the dog can run behind us and sit, right? And wait for safety. That's a really, really nice, nice skill to have for our dogs. But obviously that's going to take a little bit of time as well. Well, one thing I like about the behind cue too, Klaus has a behind cue, is that it keeps a leash loose. 
Because mm-hmm. if there's nothing you can do, if this dog is all up on you, we want to try and keep our dog's leash loose as much as, po- much as possible. Mm-hmm. Because if they have that tight leash, that can be another trigger on top of this lovely trigger sandwich that we're creating. Yeah. And that can lead to tension. Dogs can really feel that tension through the leash. So we want to be sure that we aren't adding to the tension in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. And that can be hard. Nobody likes being rushed by an off-leash dog. So keeping your own cool in that environment can be challenging. Um, I will say too, for my unexpected and unfortunate encounters, I do always ride with spray shield as a last minute resort. It is not my goal or my intention to cause harm to any human or any dog. Um, But at the end of the day, I need to protect myself and protect my dog as well. So if my call your dog doesn't work and my treat scatter doesn't work and talking to the dog and putting myself a physical barrier between my dog and them doesn't work, I have that as my last resort to keep everybody safe. And I believe spray shield is citronella, isn't it? So it's not mace. Mm-hmm. It's certainly right. not bear mace or pepper spray. So it's something right. that won't necessarily hurt the dog, but it will be a deterrent yep. to help them go away, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And I, I ride with that uh, on my wrist too, so that it's easy to access. Never used it. Been mushing for you know 12 years, never used it, but it always gives me peace of mind knowing that I have it there. I think it's important to note it was on your wrist because I had spray shield in the car as Klaus and I were jumped on the trail by three off-leash dogs. It did result in a vet visit, unfortunately, and it uh, could have been a lot worse, but I wish that I'd had that spray shield on my belt as opposed to in the car. Yeah, easy to grab, Mm -hmm. easy to grab. Uh, My motto is always prepare for the worst, but hope for the best. Right, That goes with my first aid kits that I always bring along and my emergency travel information, right? It's it's setting ourselves up for success so that if the unexpected happened, we'd be prepared. Mm-hmm. So I think that's important. And along that lines, we also might need to make the decision to uh, train our dogs how to wear a basket muzzle. Unfortunately, with there's a lot of stigma against muzzles. Um, people look at them and think, gosh, my dog doesn't need a muzzle or that makes my dog look mean, but the right kind of muzzle and training it in the right way, we teach it as a trick so that we pull it out and the dog gets excited to put it on, right? Um, And we're talking about basket muzzles. So those are muzzles that the dog can open mouth pant as much as they needed to. They could drink, they could still take treats, Um, but those are wonderful tools for our reactive dogs as well. Mm -hmm. There are, and nowadays there are fun muzzles that they have different colors and things. I know the the Bumas muzzle. And I'd like to just point out the muzzle up project Mm -hmm. uh, that was recently taken over by Michael Shikashio of um, what is he? Aggression. Yep. Aggression dogs or aggression Mm -hmm. to dogs is a great resource. If you're just getting into muzzle also Chirag Patel's muzzle video has been really helpful with my clients to have the dog put the muzzle on themselves rather than you putting the muzzle on the dog so that the dog really enjoys muzzle. I have many reactive clients that would wear muzzles because they liked it because it kept other dogs from their dog that fewer people would approach, especially people that have not everyone's dog is cute, but especially people that have very cute dogs that people want to come up or say you have a golden retriever or something that children want to come up and approach having the muzzle on. If your dog, um, has been dog reactive or people reactive can be another helpful deterrent to keep people away. Yeah, absolutely. And in those off-leash encounters we were just talking about, it's going to 
make sure that our dog doesn't cause harm to anybody too, you know? Mm -hmm. So if we're running those single track trails that are a bit more narrow, right. Or we're worried because when our dog reacts, they, they snap, right. They pull Mm -hmm. towards the other dog and snap. Then having that basket muzzle on will give you peace of mind. And like you said, it, it's a wonderful way to, to be a little bit of a deterrent to others so that they respect your space because that's something that here in the States, at least everybody wants to come say hi with their dog and, you know, doing dog powered sports in general, we don't want that, but we definitely don't want that with our, our dogs that are reactive. Mm-hmm. Um, so can be trained uh, as a trick too. So remember that we are teaching our dogs how to put the muzzle on themselves. We put it on cue, you know, and, and ideally every time we pull it out, the dog's like, yay, right? And they come and throw their face into that muzzle. Um, and even if you're not sure if you're going to use it on the trails, it's a wonderful tool to have. I personally basket muzzle train every single dog I own. Um, and I always, even if I'm working with clients on things like puppy socialization or, you know, basic pet manners, we're working on basket muzzle training because you never know when your dog is going to get hurt and have to go to the emergency vet, right? And when they're uncomfortable, they're more likely to react because ouch, that hurts, right? And so having that basket muzzle on does help give that veterinary staff a little bit of peace of mind as well. I've also, I know you have experience in the vet world, Chelsea. I've also worked in doggy daycare and in the grooming world at some of the big box pet stores and they will muzzle your dog and they will use the nylon muzzles, which are not as comfortable as basket muzzles. They don't need your permission to muzzle your dog. So if you've ever taken your dog to boarding facility or a grooming facility or a vet, they probably have been muzzled in mm-hmm. their lifetime. I, I imagine every dog in their lifetime has potentially been muzzled without you even knowing. So taking the time to muzzle train your dog so that we're not adding to the stress when they're in these situations can help because we do want our groomers and vets to be safe. Um, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Got to take care of them so they can take care of our dogs. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, Those muscles can also be helpful as we're starting to get our reactive dogs out on group runs. Um, You know, group runs are certainly not for all reactive dogs, but they can be beneficial. Um, Making friends with a small select group of dogs can help reactive dogs. They learn to trust those dogs. It can help give them positive experiences with other dogs. Um, And if your dog is extra vocal or snappy, those basket muzzles can give everybody a little peace of mind when you're getting started in those group runs. Um, But we certainly need to talk about um, when we decide if a group run is acceptable. Um, So talk to us a little bit about that. I would think that... When you feel confident that your dog is not going to overreact per se is a good time. So again, thinking, just really being honest with yourself about your level of confidence with your dog and trying to make predictions about their behavior. You are your dog's best advocate and you are the one that knows your dog best. I tell myself a lot, (laughs) that a lot as a trainer that I can only be such a coach and an advocate, but really the handler is the one that sees the dog the most. So you really know your dog best and you can, you're really the only one that can make the best decision for your dog in these situations. But if you want to be honest with yourself, do you think that your dog is going to have a good time? So if you think about how many times are they going to be exposed to dogs, how many times are they going to react? So hopefully they're staying sub threshold 100% of the time, but that's not always quite possible. But we want to think about, we certainly don't want it to be every time they see a dog, they react or even 50% of the time, probably want it to be less than that. But some things we can do is you can warm up far away from the other dogs. 
I think that dogs just, and this is my experience, Chelsea, just my opinion, not necessarily anything based on any facts that I've seen or papers, but dogs tend to do better when they're running or walking or do an activity with each other. Mm-hmm. And so the running part is not necessarily the problem. It's the starting and the stopping and the the chatting beforehand or asking questions or harness fitting. So if you can get space in the beginning and then start running with everyone, maybe behind or in front, depending on what's best for your dog and give plenty of space. If you know your dog's uh, critical distance or how far you need to be away to not elicit a response, then doing that is going to be helpful. Um, so anytime the, t- the group starts and stops, you pull off at that distance. So you really just, if you know in your head, like for Lizzie, if I know I need to maintain kind of 30 feet, even though it sounds kind of crazy, I'll try and do that. I will try and maintain that distance. I almost envision if there was a pole between me and the, the dog in front of me, yeah. <laughs> I try and maintain that distance, even if they're starting and stopping by yeah. pulling to the side. And maybe I need to holler at, at the <laughs> folks in front of me, but yep. I'm going to do that if it helps keep my dog under the threshold. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you can't get that social time in. It just means mm-hmm. when we first get to the park, it's social time, humans only without your dog. Your dog hangs mm-hmm. out in the crate in the car for a few minutes. And then you go do your warm up, you know, with a little bit of space, letting your dog adjust to the environment, maybe doing a few check ins to help, you know, reduce that uh, arousal level and, and help them focus a little bit. Keeping space when you run, keeping space when you stop. And then again at the end, keeping that space as you do your own cool down, letting them decompress, and then let them hang out in the car with a Kong or a bone or a toy in their crate you know, while you have that social time at the end too, um, so that we're not putting our dogs into a situation. Because oftentimes I find that with our reactive dogs, they will be a bit tired after the run. And so they might not be quite as reactive, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're comfortable. There's a big difference with our dogs between actively enjoying something and tolerating something. And I think that line can sometimes get blurred or confused a little bit. So respecting all of your dog's uh, space needs and respecting all their stress signaling that they would need before the run, I think is also what we need to maintain after that run. And I can't say how important the warm-up is. I'm glad you brought that up because it's not just about the warm-up for their bodies, but it's also the warm-up for their mind. Klaus does so much better when I get him out, get him sniffing, get him pottied. And also remember dogs really use their nose to see the world. So once mm-hmm. they get, they see where they are with their nose in the parking lot and they kind of get their bearings, they may feel more comfortable. So Klaus and I tend to explore the parking lot and he gets more settled. And Chelsea, I know your dogs are fantastic in the car. You've been working on that. Klaus yeah. and I have been working on that too, but we did have a car accident a few years back and he's had some car reactivity since then. And we're also living in the city. <laughs> Random things that, especially if you're a musher up north, you probably don't encounter, but we had <laughs> um, some folks would come up and bang on the car or start cleaning the car at, yeah. at traffic Stop lights and yep. things. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and uh, so Klaus didn't take too kindly to that. So he is more reactive in the car. So if your dog is reactive in the car and your dog is barking in the car, Maybe keeping them out, but further away from the group is going to be best. Mm-hmm. Um, but just finding out where your dog is most comfortable, yeah. whether it's in the crate or out, is is going to be helpful to them. Um, yeah. I also wanted to stress that it does get better. The yeah. more your dog gets now, this is if we keep it positive, if we keep it exciting, if we keep it under threshold. Dogs, 
I've seen many reactive dogs start to get, I'm not going to say friends because they don't necessarily greet the other dogs, but they get so much more comfortable and less reactive the more they see, okay, yeah, every Tuesday I go out and I see this other dog from afar and we run and I feel good and then I go home and he doesn't ever approach me. He doesn't ever bark at me or do anything. And this, I guess he's kind of cool. So I yeah. think it, we can start as humans, we can start to see this will get better. If you do have one time that you go out and it wasn't as much fun as you thought, it does get better. But the key is keeping it short, keeping it positive and keeping it, you know, keeping it fun for our dogs yeah. so that we can extend that. Yeah, I think that that fun factor is important and that comfort level is really important. You know, at the end of the day, we're in this sport to have fun with our dogs. And that line of having fun and not, we need to address not only for ourselves, but also for our dogs, right? So we start talking about the emotional toll that if we're doing it wrong, right, and going to these group runs and our dog is reactive, the whole time at the start line, the whole time at the finish line, that's going to take a serious emotional toll on our dogs. Um, I know that you know this, but I was um, recently this past summer in a car accident, we'll say. Uh, we were driving, we had done a day adventure of paddle boarding and hiking with the dogs. And it was a very stressful situation with lots of trigger stacking, avoiding a thunderstorm as we got off the water <laughs> on the paddle boards, trying to pack up quickly. Uh, and we were on a really narrow uh, and treacherous gravel mountain road and our car lost traction and it slid backwards off the road. We had one tire left on the road two tires in the air. Uh, when my husband jumped out of the driver's side, he fell four feet down. So it was extremely traumatizing for us. And obviously that is a very uh, <laughs> big, intense example. But for a while after that, I, well, I still get nervous on gravel roads. Um, we are more vigilant about checking weather and keeping a track on maps, right? So we were worried about the thunderstorm. So there are lots of triggers that we experienced in that situation that are that definitely impacted me emotionally right after and are still impacting me today. And I think that that's really important because that's what our dogs are experiencing. You know, that was a terrifying, life-threatening situation um, on more than one account. And I, and while, yes, some reactive dogs are overexcited versus really terrified, it's important that we understand that each time they have a reaction, that's an emotional stress response. And when we're not mindful about managing that and resolving all of it with positive reinforcement training and making it a good experience for our dogs. It does take a toll on our dogs. And I think about thinking, I'm sorry that you went through that, Chelsea. It yeah. like really, I'd heard the story, but I just hadn't really like visualized it. Visualized it. That yeah. sounds absolutely terrifying. So yeah, no wonder that you're freaking out. I think, and I think it doesn't have to be that it, that intense to us. Mm -hmm. But our dogs may have a totally different experience. If you really put yourself in their paws, if they have been approached or attacked, or even we could say, even if they were like muzzle punched or just poked by a dog off leash, that could be really scary. You imagine yeah. if you had been poked by somebody out in the woods and that you couldn't control what they were doing, that'd be so, so scary. So thinking mm -hmm. 
it doesn't even have to be something that traumatic, but even something smaller to your dog can have such a big consequence. But I think the key again, the mantra is it will get better. The more yeah. you do work, this there are programs, there are people that can help you. And I liked what you talked about, Chelsea, of this really does impact dogs' performance. Mm -hmm. So if you are someone that's super competitive and you're saying, oh, this sounds like a lot of work, sounds like a lot of time, I really want to focus on our competition goals, I'm just going to hook up to Harness. He does well in Harness. I'll just forgive when we lunge and bark at other dogs or whatever. Yeah. I think that this, our dogs feeling comfortable mm -hmm. and happy will lead to better performance. Yep. So this really is something that should go up on your priority list when it comes to training goals, because the more comfortable your dog is going to feel, the more competitive they are. So making working with your reactive dog a part of your fitness goals mm -hmm. and a part of your training, your competition goals is going to help make you more competitive. Yeah. With them having spending less energy being worried about their environment or too aroused by their environment they're going to be more focused in harness they're going to be running better and you'll be more confident running them mm -hmm. you know it'll take stress out of the equation for both of you and when we're talking about training programs it's a few minutes every day you know it's actually less time you're going to be working on behavior modification training plans for a reactive dog than your strength workout right? Like we're not going out and doing an hour long leash walk with our reactive dogs. We're going out for 10 minutes a day, right? Yeah. 15 minutes a day. It's short. It doesn't take a huge time commitment, but it takes consistency, mm -hmm. consistency and commitment to the program. And the end result is less stress for you and the dog, more confidence with your dog. And like you said, better performance. And that's, that's desirable. That's what we want. Yeah. It's really about being mindful with your dog and letting him know that, Hey, I've got you. Because mm -hmm. sometimes if we just ignore our dogs lunging and barking and overreacting to things, what they're, what we're really doing is telling them like, you know, what do you, that doesn't matter. That's, you know, that's not your concern or that's okay. Or we don't need to anthropomorphize what we're doing here. But when we work with them and when we give them the distance that they're looking for, when we tell, that's really telling them, hey, you don't need to lunge and bark like this. That looks exhausting. It's a lot of effort. I've got your back. I now recognize that this makes you uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Let's pull off to the side or, hey, it's okay. Let's give you some cookies and yeah. we'll work through this together. So I know working with Lizzie now, she does start to look back at me of what should I do, mom? Whereas yeah. before she probably felt alone that she had to handle this on her own. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think that's so important because at the end of the day, we're in this for the fun and the teamwork, you know? And so we know that our dogs got our back in harness, running out front, pulling, navigating the trails with us. And then we can reciprocate that. We can let the dogs know that we have their back and that we're going to help, help them feel more comfortable and, and learn what to do in these situations. So Allie, thank you so much for, for joining us for this two-part series. I, I hope that it will help some people learn um, some new techniques and, and maybe even give them some confidence that they can tackle this, you know, that it is, it is doable. Lots of information out there. Um, I'll be sure to include some resources for everybody in the episode notes so that you can learn a little bit more about those books and those programs that we mentioned here today. Yeah, I want to thank you, Chelsea, for having me and just leave everyone with a final thought that this is this is just a behavior, just like any other behavior. It's something we can work with. It's not your fault. This is dog trainers, dogs are reactive as well. It's something that we could have a whole discussion about that, too. You're yeah. just thinking that we you can help your dog and it can get better. 
by just working a couple of minutes a day. And it's worth it. Your dog's worth it. So until next time, have fun chasing tails on the trails.